Terry Met, virtual traveller, and welcome back to Stories from Law, a monthly podcast that explores folklore and the stories it inspires. My name is Dawn Nelson, and I am an author and professional storyteller. In today's episode, I'm looking at the folklore surrounding the frog, and the story from law for this episode is The Well of the World's End, collected by Joseph Jacobs. I'd like to start this episode by reading you a very short poem from the 1920s, written by a young Norwegian living in Chicago. And that's all the information we are given about him, I'm afraid. It was a poem that appeared a lot in US publications, but it was his observations of the frog. What a queer bird the frog are. When he sit, he stand. Almost. When he walk, he fly. Almost. When he talk, he cry. Almost. He ain't got no sense, hardly. And he ain't got no tail, neither. Hardly. He sit on what he ain't got, hardly. I think this is a wonderful poem to describe the frog because it just describes the frog perfectly. This queer bird mentioned in the poem has played a part in our folklore and mythology for thousands of years. For the Greeks, they represented fertility and renewal, both of which can be linked to transformation, which is certainly seen in the life cycle of the frog. Frog spawn, tadpole, frog. The process of metamorphosis is a fascinating one and symbolic of many things. The Egyptian goddess of fertility, Heket, often carried with her the symbol of the frog. This frog was called Hathor and was linked to the flooding of the Nile. The Nile floodwaters brought nutrients to the soil each year, which in turn was linked to the success of the crops. So it makes sense. For the Aztecs, the frog was represented in a goddess called Zinteatuk. She was the patron of childbirth and fertility, and took the form of a frog or a toad-like bipedal creature with udders. She was essentially a goddess of the crops. I'll put a picture of this goddess in my Stories from Law group so you can have a look. Because she really is a fascinating being. The bringing of the rains was another way frogs symbolised fertility for the Aztecs, and they made small totems in the shape of frogs, which they then placed on the hills in order to bring the rains. For the Chinese, they hold a female energy and are therefore a yin force. The outline of the toad is thought to be able to be seen in the moon, and it is said that an eclipse is when the toad or frog that lives in the moon swallows the moon. In the Christian Physiologus, which is a little like a medieval beastery in the Aesop's fables combined, frogs are separated into land frogs and water frogs, and they're not always good. This is what it says. There is a frog called a Cerceus, meaning the one from the dry place. This frog is not bothered by the heat during the summer, but if he is caught in the rain, he will die. If the water frogs, however, who live in bodies of water, look upon the rays of the sun and become warm, they baptise themselves in a stream. The ones from the dry place represent fine, abstinent men who are unaffected by waiting patiently in abstinence. However, if they are caught in the rain, that is, the worldly desires, more than they die. Water frogs, however, are those who cannot stand abstinence. If these abstain until daytime, not being able to bear a ray of intelligible sunlight, well, they slip back again into their former desires. This hypothesis that some frogs are good and some are bad is continued into the medieval bestiaries as well. So either way, frogs clearly symbolise abundance and fertility for many cultures, sometimes in a negative way, 
representing debauchery or excess, but most of the time positively in terms of fertile fields and prosperous communities. For farming communities, of course, the weather is extremely important. And so, what with its link to rain, dating right back to the Aztecs, it's no surprise that the frog finds itself at the centre of much weather lore as well. Spanning almost 2,000 years, the folklore connecting frogs to rain is most famously portrayed in the Christian Bible, when there is a plague of frogs falling from the sky. Live animals have been known to fall from the sky, frogs and fish in the main, and it was an early belief that the sun drew up the frog spawn and that it hatched in the heat of the sun up there in the sky, and, and then eventually the frogs rained down on the earth. Later, science has shown us that it's most likely to be whirlwinds and waterspouts lifting up the frogs and then dumping them back down. But frogs don't have to be the rain itself. As we have seen, they are also harbingers of rain. For the Appalachians, hearing a frog croaking at midnight meant rain was on the way. For the Maori people, killing a frog could bring floods and heavy rains. And another part of the world, exactly the opposite. I guess this is perhaps the difference between a curse or a sacrifice. Sacrifice the frog to bring the rain, kill the frog for no reason and be cursed, perhaps, with no rain. In Ireland, frogs are thought to have been introduced in the 1600s by some English students studying at Trinity College. And in Irish folklore, it is thought that the colour of the frog is an indication of the weather. And this is alluded to in Seamus Heaney's poem, Death of a Naturalist. I will again share this poem in my Stories from Law group if you want to pop across there and have a look. Frogs also have their place in folk medicine, and they can be both poisonous and hallucinogenic. Many of the indigenous people of South and Central America have used compounds from frogs and toads for these properties as part of specific rituals. The frog's cousin, the toad, was viewed as an evil creature whose blood was a potent poison and whose body has strange powers. Pliny the Elder, a Roman author and naturalist, claimed that the toad had many strange powers. He recorded that a toad's presence would silence a room full of people. Perhaps the cynic in me is just thinking they're all being quiet and trying to listen to where the toad is. Also, he recorded that a small bone from the toad's right side, if added to water, will keep it from boiling, and a bone from the left side will repel a dog's attack. I wouldn't try that if I were you. In folk medicine, if you carry a dried frog around your neck, it's said to prevent epileptic seizures, but I think it goes without saying that this and what follows is folklore and not science, and also not at all good news for frogs. If you impale a frog on a tree, let it die, and then rub it on your wart, the wart will be cured. In Ireland, putting a frog in the mouth of a child who had whooping cough three times and then letting it swim away into the water will cure the child. A live frog in the mouth will also cure toothache and a sore throat probably just takes your mind off it. But this gave rise to the origin of the phrase, I've got a frog in my throat. So frogs are meteorologists, doctors and undertakers, but why would you want to kiss one? Finally, we arrive at the folklore hinted at in the title of this episode, and that is the concept of kissing a frog in order to find true love. And this is often found in the frog prince stories. The first record of a story of a frog transforming into a prince was in a text called The Complaint of Scotland. 
and the story is called The Well of the World's End. This story was later collected and adapted by the Grimm brothers and then Joseph Jacobs. The Grimm brothers version is called Iron Henry. And as we know, the Grimm stories, well, they went through various permeations through their seven editions of their book. And the third version of this tale begins rather famously with the line, Once upon a time when wishing helped. But we're concerned with endings, not beginnings. And none of these stories end with a princess kissing a frog. Believe it or not, none of these original stories recorded had a heroine kissing a frog in them. The idea that this happened has become a bit of a misnomer, a bit of folklore in itself. The frog becomes a prince through other means in these stories. In Iron Henry, the poor cursed frog is smashed against a wall before he is turned into a prince, perhaps symbolising the taming of an over-amorous suitor. And at the end of The Well of the World's End, collected by Joseph Jacobs, well, instead of telling you the ending, let me just tell you the whole story instead. So here it is, The Well of the World's End. A long time ago, there lived a daughter and her father. She had lost her mother and, well, she and her father, they had grieved together. They had been through a lot and finally her father had found another woman that he wished to marry. They did marry and this woman became the daughter's stepmother. Now, unfortunately, the stepmother was jealous of the relationship that the daughter had with her father, for they were very close. She knew very well that she would never be able to compete with this, and so instead she decided she would treat the daughter badly. She was particularly jealous of the time that the daughter would spend with her father, and so she found jobs for the daughter to do and filled every minute of her day with work. She insisted that she swept the fires, get the wood, make the beds, bake the bread, and if anything needed doing, she'd tell the father just to leave it to the daughter. And the father... Well, he didn't seem to do anything about this. But the daughter, she'd do these tasks quite happily and she had no problem. There were jobs that she'd done before when she and her father were on their own. So, you know, it wasn't really much of a burden to her. And she did all of these jobs with a smile on her face and good grace. This, of course, annoyed the stepmother even more. It annoyed her so much that one day she hid the bucket that the daughter would use to go and get water from the well. And when the daughter came to ask where the bucket was, the stepmother said, well, that couldn't be used anymore, and she'd have to take a sieve instead. But mother, said the girl, how, how can I possibly fill a sieve with water? It's not possible. Ah, well, there is one well where you can fill it, said the stepmother, and that is the well of the world's end. Well, where's that? said the daughter. Well, at the world's end, of course. And she sent the daughter off to go and find the well. Of course, the stepmother didn't believe that there was actually a well at the world's end. She just wanted rid of her daughter. And she honestly thought the girl would just never come back again and she'd just never find the well. The daughter took the sieve and she really did not know what to do, but she did as her stepmother said and she started to walk south in the direction that she thought the world's end must be. She walked through the many lands that lay before her, many of them unfamiliar, and she looked out for the wells in these lands, and every time she got to one, 
She'd look around for somebody to ask, but each time all she saw was a little frog sat on the well. So she'd ask the frog. Is this the well of the world's end? Nope. She'd have to walk on. Until eventually she came to a land that was neither wooded nor had mountains nor grass nor soil, just sand that stretched for miles and in the middle of this sand was a well. The sun was neither set nor risen and hung halfway in the sky and it sparkled off the water within the well. On the edge of the well was another little frog. And the girl, she went up to the frog and she asked, Is this the well of the world's end? Yep. Well, she was so relieved because she had walked so far, but of course now she was at her wit's end, never mind the world's end, because whilst she'd found the well, how was she ever going to fill this sieve? She sat down, her back against the wall of the well, and overcome with frustration, she sobbed. Why are you crying? said the little frog. Well, because I have to fill this sieve and I'm never going to manage to do that because I can't even see how this well is any different from any of the other wells. Ah, said the frog. Well, I know how you can fill that sieve with water and if I tell you, which I can do if you'd like, then oh, I ask a favour of you. I ask that for one whole night you do as I ask. The girl looked at the frog, the tears still wet on her cheeks. And she thought, how difficult can that be to do as a frog asks? Can't ask too much, surely. OK, yes, she said. Yes. So the frog tells her, stop it with mud and clag it with clay. That'll help carry the water away. Of course, she says. Why she hadn't seen it, she has no idea. But she was tired and exhausted, so perhaps we can give her that excuse. The little frog got down off the well and kicked about in the sand and mixed it up with the water. And the girl picked up the mud and stopped all the holes in the sieve. And at last, once it was dry in the sun, she was able to dip the little sieve into the well and fill it full of water and started the long journey home. As she's walking away from the well and following the path home, she hears a little voice say, Don't forget me! I won't, she says and waves for she thinks the frog will not follow her. Surely he cannot mean for her to keep her promise. He can't want to come all the way home with her. But the frog does follow her all the way home. And when she gets to the house, she goes in and closes the door quick so that the frog can't get in. And when she sees her stepmother, she says, Look, look, I've got the water! Her stepmother, she is really not pleased. That the daughter has managed to do this. However, there's not much she can do about it. They all sit down together for dinner and the water that has been collected by the daughter the mother makes bread from. They sit down to soup and bread and small ale and they talk about the day and the daughter tells of her great journey to the well of the world's end. While they are talking, they hear a little knock on the door and a little voice. Let me in, let me in, it says. What is that? says the stepmother. Daughter of the man who lives here, let me in. Ah, seems to be a caller for you, says the stepmother. The daughter goes to open the door, but she already knows who she will find. There on the doorstep is the tiny little frog. 
and now the stepmother is smiling. Now the stepmother is not cross anymore because she can see that there is something going on here. It's making the daughter very uncomfortable and she senses a way to get back at her again. To redress the balance of power. You promised, said the frog, you promised that you would do as I asked for one night. Now let me in. Well, you better let him in, says the stepmother, if you promised. So the daughter does. She has no choice, does she? She closes the door and goes and sits back at the table. The frog hops across the floor and sits beneath the table at her feet. And he speaks to her. Ah, my hinny, my honey, my sweet. Lift me up to your knee so your mother I may meet. Oh, really? Thinks the daughter. I don't really want him on my knee. You promised, says the stepmother, grinning from ear to ear. And so the daughter lifts up the frog and puts the frog on her knee. Ah, my hinny, my honey, my sweet, lift me up to your plate so your food I may eat. Oh, thinks the daughter. I don't want a frog eating from my plate. But she looks at her stepmother's grinning face and, yes, yet again, she has no choice. She places the frog next to her plate. Eventually, the awkward meal is over and the family are going to retire to bed. Now, normally, the daughter is made to sleep by the fire, but on this occasion, the stepmother has relented as the daughter has had a very long journey and her father is insisting that she has a decent bed for the night. She is heading off to bed for the first time in a long time when the frog says... Ah, my hinny, my honey, my sweet, let me sleep in your bed. That'll be a treat. The first time she's been allowed to sleep in a bed for months and this little frog wants to share it with her. Ew. Well, now her stepmother is laughing. You promised, you promised. And so the daughter picks up the frog and places him on her pillow. But she decides she would rather sleep by the fire, thank you, this evening. Nothing else happens much that night until the morning when she wakes up and starts to cut wood for the fire. She does not bother to check on the frog. She is, in fact, most annoyed by the whole thing and as she's angrily stoking the fire, the little frog hops out of her bed, down the hall and into the room where she is tending to the fire. And this is what he says. Ah, my hinny, my honey, my sweet, cut off my head, hear the words I speak. The daughter looks at the frog and thinks a madness must have taken it. Are you sure? she says. Surely not. That would kill you. Ah, oh, my hinny, my honey, my sweet. Cut off my head. Hear the words I speak. Well, all of this conversation had woken the stepmother and she came into the room and stood there with her hands on her hips. You promised, she said, delighting in the anguish of her stepdaughter's face. You did, said the frog. So the daughter again has no choice. And she raises the axe and she brings it down on the frog's head. But instead of a dead little frog, there is a handsome prince. How can she tell it's a prince, you ask? Well, he's dressed like a prince. He's got a crown and, you know, he's got the gear. And he said he's a prince. He said there was a curse that had placed upon him and that she had lifted the curse because what he needed was a maiden to do his bidding for one whole night. And she did. The prince has no wish to return to his kingdom immediately and so he stays with the family for some time and as time passes he and the daughter fall in love and they do get married. The stepmother is now even more bitter than she ever ever was. 
The only thing she has to console her now is that, well, she's sort of related to royalty. And so the next time you see a frog sat by a well, have a little listen and see what it says to you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. There are two types of frog in the UK, the common frog and pool frogs. Pool frogs were actually thought to be extinct in 1996, but a happy bit of news means that since then they've been reintroduced to Norfolk. However, the common frog is also in decline due to diminishing habitats, but if you see a pond or a pool where a frog may hang out, have a little look, because in March you should be able to see them. This episode brings us to the end of season one. The seven shows in this season I have been releasing weekly in an attempt to help us through various lockdown restrictions, and these episodes were based on some of the live shows that I did earlier in the year. The podcast will be returning in January with season two, and the first episode of the new season will feature Kaliaks and Glastigs, the old hags of the land. Episodes will then be released monthly. I'd like to thank all my patrons for their support of my Patreon, my stories and the podcast so far. You can, of course, join my Patreon for extended episodes and, from January, to vote on the theme for new episodes. For the extended version of this podcast, I'm looking at the folklore of Wells and retelling the Grimm's collected tale, The Water Nixie, over on my Patreon, Rewild Yourself Through Story. You can also find digital zines and audio stories, and you can find my Patreon by going to www.patreon.com forward slash ddstoryteller. I do hope to see you there, as I'd love to tell you another story. There are other ways that you can support the podcast. And these are leaving a review. These help the stories journey out into the world and to reach new audiences. And telling your friends and sharing the podcast with them. For more stories woven with folklore in the old ways, you can also find me on Facebook as Dee Storyteller and on Instagram as at Dee underscore Storyteller. I also have a Facebook group called Stories from Law and there we share folklore and music and books and chat a little about the podcast. Thank you for listening and I'll see you again soon for more Stories from Law. Toodle pip! <laughs> <laughs>